0: There, you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: We'll begin in prayer.
2: All of us are grieved, I'm sure, by the horrible, tragic events in, um, in, in, uh, in Newtown, Connecticut, and so um, offer a prayer, uh, which is one of the oldest ones in our liturgy. It goes back to uh, at least the third century Syria. O God of all spirits and of all flesh, who have destroyed death and overcome the devil and given life to the world, grant, O Lord, of the souls of thy servants who have departed this life that they repose in the place of light and happiness and peace where there is no pain, no grief, nor sighing. And since thou art a gracious God and thou lovest mankind, forgive them every sin they have committed by thought or by word or by deed. For there is not a man who lives and does not sin, And thou alone art without sin. Thy righteousness is everlasting, and thy word is true. And thou art the resurrection, and the life, and the repose of thy departed servants, O Christ our God. And we give glory to thee with thine eternal Father, and thine all-holy, good, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen.
1: Good evening. I am so excited about our program this evening because it was, boy, 12 years ago, I can't believe that, 12 years ago that I was in Dr. O'Donnell's History 101 course, and it was a life-changing experience for me. And I asked Dr. O'Donnell to come this evening, (laughs) He, he says for him too, I remember in the middle of the final taking a break to use the restroom and I saw Dr. O'Donnell in the hallway and I, and I told him how powerful the course had been for me in the preparation for the final. I told him, I had just finished my essay and I quoted Bob Dylan. In my essay, I hope you don't mind. He said, not at all, not at all. Thank God he passed me. Our speaker this evening is the president of Christendom College in Front Royal, also my alma mater. In 2002, Dr. O'Donnell was appointed as consulter to the Pontifical Council for the Family by Pope John Paul II. Pope Benedict XVI renewed this appointment in 2009. He is a Knight Grand Cross of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem and is a member of many other organizations including the Catholic Academy of Sciences and the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. He is also on the Board of Advisors for the Institute on Religious Life, the Cardinal Newman Society, and our own Institute of Catholic Culture. In fact, Dr. O'Donnell was the first member of our advisory board. I don't know if he knew that at the time when I asked him, but uh, he graciously agreed to support us and to be there for us as we moved forward with a vision which we had and we did not know yet if we could accomplish. He is the author of Heart of the Redeemer, A Theological Investigation and Spiritual Guide to the Devotion in the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and Swords Around the Cross, a historical investigation of a crucial period in the history of Catholic Ireland. He's a frequent lecturer for EWTN. Dr. O'Donnell and his wife Catherine have nine children and six grandchildren. They reside in Stephen City, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Timothy O'Donnell.
3: Well good evening, everybody. Good evening. It's good to be with you all. Uh, very happy to be here. I actually just got back from Rome late Wednesday night, and uh, happy to be with you. Happy to be awake, actually. <laughs> uh, but it was a wonderful we went over there for a Congress to pursue questions touching upon evangelization here in the Americas. And there were people from Latin America, Central America, who really focused on Our Lady of Guadalupe as sort of the greatest evangelist of all times. I mean, you think about it, 9 million converts in such a short period of time. And uh, it was very inspiring. I would just share with you how many good people there are who are excited about the new evangelization and want to see a real renewal of Catholic life, both in North America and also in Latin America as well. But I'm delighted to be with you here in Advent as we prepare for Gaudete Sunday. Uh, somebody got rose on. Are you anticipating a little? You did. Oh, you are so together. Anyway, I don't have anything that's rose. So anyway, you just get Christmas. so I'm sorry. I did what I could. But uh, let's begin with a little prayer taken from the office. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is now the hour for you to wake from sleep. For our salvation is closer than when we first accepted the faith. The night is far spent, the day draws near. Let us cast off deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. What I'm going to give you a little bit tonight is a little bit of background leading up to the incarnation. It's a good thing to do in Advent and reflect and I have no problem with Santa Claus. I have no problem with silver bells. I have no problem with a trip to the mall, provided we remember why it's all there. And it's not there because of a cute, nice story. It's all there because of a historic reality, all right? And that's what we need to focus upon. There is no event in the history of the world that has had such a profound impact upon mankind as the coming of Christianity. Doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or whether you're a secular historian it is the most significant thing in human history. Many persons before or since Jesus had claimed to speak for God, many have done so, but none have been so precisely predicted, so universally expected, or so anxiously awaited. One of the reasons why Christianity was able in such a short period of time to displace so many widely diverse religions that were in existence at that time, had to do with the atmosphere of the world at that time, the condition of the world back then. And this is something we should take a close look at. First of all, we want to recall that there were Jewish prophecies over a thousand years old. For over a thousand years, there were prophecies that existed that spoke about the coming of the Anointed One, the Messiah, who would suffer and die, and a lot of precise details about that Messiah. But even among the pagan Romans, there was great expectation at that time. Even their famous historian Tacitus said that a great ruler of the world was expected to come forth from Judea. Isn't that weird? Judea of all places. Josephus also mentions that there was great expectation that a world leader was going to come forth from Judea. And it's interesting to note this expectation on the part of the Romans. Just before the birth of our Lord, Virgil wrote his Eclogues. Now the Eclogues are sort of these sort of bucolic poems celebrating sort of joyful country life. And then right in the middle, the tone changes in a very dramatic way. And he speaks of an imminent arrival of the last age where everything will be reborn and begin anew. And he actually says, and these are the words in Virgil's fourth Eclogue: the virgin will return from the heights of heaven and a new generation descends. A child is born, the race of iron ceases, and a race of gold shall arise all over the world. He shall receive divine life, and he shall rule a world that has been given peace. He will be the child of peace, and the serpent shall die. Virgil's Fourth Eclogue. It's very interesting. Some of you might have heard that Pope Benedict has a new book out on Jesus of Nazareth. Take a look at that book, and you'll find he refers explicitly to Virgil's Fourth Eclogue in that book. And I was delighted to see, because it tends to be ignored by many, many people. And he says there is no doubt that there is something deep in the human heart, even though this is not inspired, it's not divine revelation, but this longing, this sense of longing for inspiration, and that a virgin would come and would bring about a special renewal is something that was there. In addition to this, there were other things that were going on in the Roman world. After Virgil's fourth eclogue was written, there was an ancient tradition still preserved in Rome that said that Augustus Caesar himself had a vision of this virgin descending from heaven with this divine child of hers. And that he actually built an altar dedicated to this virgin and this child. And if you go to Rome up on the Capitoline Hill to this very day, right next to where the ruins of the great temple of Jupiter, you still find preserved there what is called to this day the Aracheli, the altar of heaven, which commemorates this vision that supposedly Augustus Caesar had. And it's interesting to note that some of the columns still around that altar have Augustus' name inscribed upon them. Isn't that interesting? Other little things. Staying with the Romans. There's a church over in Trastevere across the Tiber. In ancient times, that was the Jewish quarter, not the modern day ghetto, but the Jews back at the time when our Lord would have been born, the time of Peter and Paul lived over in Trastevere. And about 30 years before the birth of Christ, suddenly on this spot erupted this big flowing thing of oil. So much oil began to come up that it flowed all the way down into the Tiber and the Jews saw all of this oil going. Now, of course, if you're a Jew and you think of oil, what do you think of? Kings, anointing, the Messiah. So all of this incredible expectation that the Messiah is going to be coming. And that was never forgotten, and it was never forgotten by the Christians. And to this day, the oldest church in Rome, not the largest, but the oldest, is Santa Maria in Trastevere. And if you go there, right under the communion rail behind the grate, they have still preserved there. Fons oleo, the fountain of oil, the site where this oil came up before the birth of Christ. It's also significant to reflect upon the fact that the entire world was at peace. The entire world was at peace, and that's very, very significant. As a matter of fact, in 13 BC, uh, the Roman Senate erected a beautiful altar called the Arapachis, the altar of peace to celebrate that in Augustus's rule, the entire empire was at peace. No wars on the borders, no wars anywhere. And as a matter of fact, if you walk along the Tiber, they have discovered the Arapaches and they've put it back together. I was just there walking at it, looking at it. You can go visit it, celebrating the fact that in the reign of Augustus, there was universal peace. Remember that fourth echologue that the child of peace was to come. All of these things happening. And then, of course, as we move into the Christian era around that time, certain other things begin to happen. That as we look back on them, we can see that they make a great deal of sense. At the time of Julian the Apostate, he was trying to revive paganism. You remember him, don't you? He's well-named, Julian the Apostate. You know what he did. All right. So anyway, he was trying to get the oracle at Delphi back into the swing of things. What a revival of paganism. And he received a letter, he received a letter, which he was told by the priest who was there. Tell the king that the good times are over, that there is no roof nor magic laurel tree for Apollo, and that the holy spring has ceased to flow. No pagan oracles. As a matter of fact, the pagan world began to notice that and noticed that this was a serious problem. And they began to debate, why is it that all over the Roman world are oracles? The great Dodona, Apollo's orca Delphi, why are they no longer speaking? So much so that Plutarch actually wrote a piece on the passing of the oracles. And I'll share it with you. Do you find this interesting? Oh, good. <laughs> Because if you didn't, it's going to be a short night. Anyway. (laughs) But listen to what he has to say. And just take it in. Just drink it in with your wine. As for the death among such beings, I once heard a story from a man who was not a fool or a deceiver. He was Epitherses, the father of the orator Emilianus, whom some of you have heard. And he was a fellow citizen of mine and a teacher of grammar. He said that once, on a voyage... To Italy, He was traveling in a ship that carried merchandise and a large number of passengers. It was evening when near the Enchiriades Islands the wind dropped and the ship drifting on drew near to Paxi. Most of the passengers were still awake and many were still sipping their after-dinner wine. Suddenly from the island of Paxi a voice was heard calling loudly for Thomas so that all were surprised for Thomas was an Egyptian pilot, not known by name to many of those on board. Twice he was called and did not answer, but the third time he replied to the caller, who then raising his voice said, when you are opposite Palodes, proclaim that the great Pan is dead. On hearing this, said Epitherses, they were all thunderstruck and debated among themselves whether it would be better to obey the order or disregard and ignore it. And Thomas decided that if the wind were blowing, he would sail past and say nothing. But if it were calm and the sea quiet, he would call out what he had heard. As he came opposite Pelotas, there was neither wind nor wave. So standing on the cern, facing the land, he shouted out what he had heard. Great Pan is dead. Even before he had finished, there rose a great moan of sorrow and astonishment from not one, but a multitude of voices. There were many people on board the ship, so that the story spread quickly to Rome. And Thomas was sent for by Tiberius Caesar himself. And Tiberius put such faith in his tale that he had an inquiry and search made for information about Pan. Isn't that interesting? The great pan, symbol of paganism, is dead. So there was a lot of expectation on the part of the Romans. But among the Greeks, also great expectation. The Greeks believed that there was a time a number of their philosophers were expecting a logos, this special word that was going to come down and bring some truth to mankind that was suffering. Even in China, thousands of miles away in the east, In the records of the Celestial Empire, there's a statement where the emperor of China is questioning his sages. What is that strange luminous light in the sky and what does it mean? And the sages in China tell the emperor, this is the great star signifying the birth of the great saint of the West, whose religion would one day come to their country. Very interesting. Today, more than ever, you have people always trying to water down Christianity and to water down the message of Jesus. They'll say the only purpose why Jesus came was to tell people to love one another. He's sort of an ethicist, all right? Sort of an ancient Paul Tillich, all right, or whatever you want to say. But uh, if that was the case, he didn't really need to come because four centuries before he came, there was a Chinese philosopher named Mo Ti. And Moti taught that the most important thing was the universal love for all of mankind. And Moti got a number of people who followed him, but about 150 years after his death, no one remembers him. Have you ever heard of Moti? Probably not. I thought, I was hoping not. But anyway, (laughs) now you do know about Moti. But of course, the problem is Moti could tell people how they should live and what they should do, but he couldn't give them the power to do that and he was just a man. The uniqueness of Jesus, and this is true if you engage in comparative religions, genuine comparative religions, the uniqueness of Jesus was that he was not just a teacher. He wasn't just a philosopher. He was not just a prophet, someone who talked about God. But even though he was all of those, he was far more. He was the God, the creator of heaven and earth made man. And he came primarily not to teach, but primarily to redeem. And he came to redeem all of mankind by his own suffering and death. And there reconcile man who had been estranged with an all-good God. The essence of our faith lies in two realities. First, fundamental reality, the incarnation. That God truly became a man. And secondly, the redemption that God himself suffered for man's sins. Christianity is a religion of grace. Unlike any other world religion, there is a whole supernatural order. There is a divine life that is being communicated. And this God-given grace makes a life of virtue possible, makes continence possible, which many in the Greco-Roman world thought was great and wanted to try to achieve, but were never able to achieve. And in many ways, Christianity was radically different from the other religions that existed in the world at that time. Radically so, even including the Eastern mystery cults. Up to the time of Jesus suffering, the great question that always confronts fallen humanity in this world, suffering was always viewed as an unmitigated evil from which no good could come. The closest thing to Christianity was the belief of the Stoics that if you experienced suffering, you could gain some wisdom and maybe some self-control by enduring it and going through it. But the idea that suffering was a special channel of God's grace, it was a way in which God could reach out and touch people, that was something that we didn't find. That suffering could draw us closer to a God who himself suffered, That is something that was unique to Christianity. There were hints of it in Job. Someday I'd like to come back and just do Job with you. It'd be a lot of fun just to take you through the book of Job. But there were only hints of that, and Job sits there crying out Do you have flesh like a man? Do you have eyes that can see like a man? Do you have a mortal lifespan like a man? All of those questions. Do you suffer like human beings do? All of those great questions. Great questions indeed. But what we have here, interestingly enough, when Christ comes and when he begins to teach, what are some of the things that he says? And we we get so used to them. We hear them so many times we become jaded and they don't hit us anymore. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when men hate you and cast you off and revile you and speak evil things about you, for they treated the prophets no better. Woe to the rich, woe to those who laugh now. Now in a lot of ways, when Christianity comes, you have a complete reversal of what most religions promised. Ancient Greeks, Romans, and Jews went to their temples to get prosperity, good fortune, and good repute. Those are not bad things. There's nothing wrong with praying for those. But those who suffered were looked upon as cast off, people who were rejected by God. And now Jesus is coming and saying the opposite, and this is going to cause a major upheaval in human history. We can say that the church herself really appears in history when Jesus Christ comes. Remember, there's a fascinating passage in Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's chapter 4, verse 4, verse 6. Take a look at it sometime. But what Paul says there, When the fullness of time was come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Isn't that a beautiful passage? It kind of summarizes everything. Born of a woman is Mary important. Yes, born to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption, something we never think about, sons and daughters of God. But the phrase I want to focus upon, when does he come? According to St. Paul, in the fullness of time. The fullness of time. At a precise moment, at a precise time, just the right time. Now that expression, fullness of time, presupposes it was a period of development when mankind was being prepared, prepared for the coming of the Christ. The kingdom of God doesn't appear unannounced in the world. Now, it's interesting to note, though, the Redeemer is first promised when? Oh, you, you're not far from the kingdom. Are you a convert from Protestantism? Okay, <laughs> I just, just thought I'd check. All right, that's impressive. That's right. With the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of our first parents, but it's interesting to note, he doesn't come for thousands of years. Why so long a delay? Because of our pride and arrogance, it would probably seem that man had to learn by experience the evil and the misery of sin that he's stuck in sin, he's born in sin, and he can't get out of sin, and therefore it's absolutely necessary that there be a divine liberator. Someone from outside time, outside history, who comes and will bring liberation. There were many ways they tried to save themselves from sin. The Romans had the Torabolium, which was a large metal grill, And they would take an enormous bullock, and they would slaughter the bullock, and the blood would run all over the grill, and they would walk under the grill, and they would let the blood from the bullock come all over them, and they felt in some way this might cleanse them from their sins. Kind of interesting, right? Cleansed in blood. All right. It's kind of wrong, but it's kind of right. Right? You're with me on that, kind of sort of. All right. But then thinking of where we actually are, where the world was, just use your imagination. Most of you are Catholics, right? I guess most of you are. Okay. So you understand what I'm going to talk to you about. Suppose, for example, you had just murdered someone. Suppose you had gossiped and really maligned someone horribly. Suppose... hmm, Suppose you had had an abortion. Suppose you had committed adultery. Think of the worst sin you can imagine. And imagine that there is no such thing as the sacrament of reconciliation. There is no such thing as confession. That is the state of the world before the coming of Christ. Whenever you hear anyone say, Christianity has made no real difference in the world. Really? Who built the orphanages? Who built the hospitals? Do you see where I'm going? With? I mean, that's the state of the world. There was no way out. That's why, unless you can enter into that period before the birth of Christ, you're not going to get a sense why they talk about good news. Or when there's an angelic salutation, Behold, I bring you tidings of great joy that shall be to all the peoples. Today, what is born? A savior in the city of David. Who is Christ the Lord? It's what the world wanted. It was the romance. It was the reality that was needed by the world. Because there was no way out of that darkness. Human life was cheap. Human life was cheap and the world was dark. Now in order that that hope for the Redeemer not be lost, God made a special covenant with Abraham. Remember Abraham? Abraham. I won't ask you the scripture passage, you probably got that down too. Chapter 12 in Genesis, right? In you, in you Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All right, why? Because from his seed will come the Messiah that is to be born. And then he raises up prophets who speak with a divine whirlwind and keep those people faithful. So in other words, what St. Paul is telling us about the fullness of time Certain things had happened in the world that made the time right for the coming of the gospel. As St. Thomas Aquinas, our great mentor, says, in this instance, the imperfect preceded the perfect, so that when the perfect came, we would have a greater appreciation of it. So the Old Testament, which was less perfect, pointed to, right, foreshadowed, led us to eventually the full light of revelation that comes with Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk a little bit about history. In 322 BC, Alexander the Great conquered Judea, and the Jewish state that existed since the time of King Cyrus of Persia, who sent the Jews back, was conquered. After that, you remember, what happened is Judea came under the domination of the Hellenistic kings. And there was one king named Antiochus Epiphanes, the divine manifestation, who wanted to force all of the Jews to become pagan. Do you remember that? It's in the book of Maccabees. Great story, great history. And, of course, we just ended Hanukkah, all right? But the great story of the Jewish revolt. Led by the Maccabee family, they broke away from Syria. And in 142, 142 years before the coming of Jesus, the Jews were again a sovereign, independent state. And when they gained that independence, many of the Jews at that time thought, the Messiah will come from the Maccabees, you'll be one of the Maccabees. Because why? Political independence, freedom. We've driven away the Syrians and those horrible Greeks, and we've purified our temple. But what happened shortly after that? All sorts of infighting, battles, the Maccabees fighting with one another, and it all began to fall apart whereupon a number of the rabbis in the synagogues began to say that when the Messiah comes, he's not going to be a temple ruler at all, but actually a great spiritual teacher, and some even indicating of divine origin, a special connection there. And that tends to be downplayed in Judaism today, but it's very interesting. Father William Most, used to teach at our graduate school, he's gone now, did a lot of research on the Targums, The Targums are Aramaic commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures in in the prophets. And they would have been read and studied in synagogue. And he did some very interesting investigations into the prophet Isaiah and the efforts that some of the rabbis had to try to make sense of some of these things. There's a great passage in Isaiah. I know you all know it because you all know Handel's Messiah. Referring to the Messiah who's to come, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God. Now, that's a problem. The one who is to come is going to be called Yahweh, the mighty God. How can that be? And you see these rabbis, they don't know about the Trinity, and they struggle with this. Somehow, he must have a unique relationship to Yahweh. And they couldn't understand, but they see what's going on here, and they're trying to figure out, how can this actually be? Big historical events. 63 BC, Judea is conquered by the Romans. Pompey, the great Pompey, marches in. 63 years before the coming of Christ, they conquer Judea. 12,000 Jews try to block his passage into the temple. He hacks his way through steel, kills them all, and then he walks himself into the temple. He goes up to the Holy Holies, he pulls back the great curtain, and he himself enters into the Holy of Holies. We don't know what he saw, we don't know what he thought, we don't know what Pompey's reaction, all we know is when he came out, he appointed a high priest and he said, I want sacrifices to continue here. And so the Jews were given freedom to practice their faith but they are incorporated into the Roman Empire. And the Romans were tolerant, allowed them to practice their religion and to follow their own law. The procurator only would interfere in very serious matters like capital punishment. If someone has to die, they couldn't put someone to death. You would need Roman permission for that. And once again, we find how time and time again, the more you look at history, the more you see the historicity of the New Testament, right? Provinces that had been pacified were directly under the Roman Senate. Provinces that were difficult to govern were directly under the rule of Caesar himself. That's why when there's the coin of tribute, right? It's Caesar because whose province is Judea? It answers to Caesar. It's under a procurator. It's all accurate. It's exactly accurate. It's the way it's supposed to be. So the Roman governor. Now the fact that the Jews had ceased to be an independent nation at this time and were incorporated into this world empire, this vast empire, which was Rome, is an amazing thing. During the reign of Augustus Caesar, remember Augustus Caesar becomes sole Caesar, Octavian reigns from 27 BC to 14 AD, 41 years. That's a long time. And remember, it's the time of the great Pax Romana, So Judea is part of the Roman Empire, and the entire world is at peace. Not only do you have the great Arapache's altar, which we have recovered now and find. It's a great testimony to the peace of the world at the time when the Prince of Peace actually comes. But in addition to that, when Rome was at war, they would go to the Roman Forum. They would open the great temple of Janus, and they would take out a spear, and the spear would be placed in the Roman Forum, indicating, we are at war. Throughout the reign of Augustus, that spear is back in the temple of Janus, and the door of that temple is closed, and it will not be opened during that reign. The whole world is at peace. Somewhere between 7 BC and probably two, possibly one BC, Jesus is born. The guy who figured out the date was wrong, we haven't gone back and corrected it because one, we're not absolutely sure of the date, and what would happen to Columbus discovering America. (laughs) I used to say the Battle of Hastings, but I'm Irish and I don't care about that, so sorry, bad joke, bad joke's Christmas, trying to be nice. All right, couple things we do want to know. There are a number of things that kind of indicate that he might have been born around 2 BC, which is very close to the actual date, so why change it? And there's a couple of reasons why uh, that is in fact the case. And it has to do with Herod and traditionally they say Herod died in 4 BC. Now that presents a problem. It appears now that there's a mistake. It was a copious mistake that Herod probably died in 2 or maybe even 1 BC because it's very clear that they say, Josephus mentions that there was a full eclipse when he died and there was no full eclipse in 1, I'm sorry, in 4. But there was a full eclipse in 2 BC and another one in 1 BC during the funeral. So shifting that we can see a number of things. There's a great program done by the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena about the whole question of dating and the Christmas star, and it's fascinating. I'll share a little bit about of that with you because it is fascinating. One of the things that astronomers using their computers can go back and can tell us is that basically from 7 to 2 BC, there was a phenomenal amount of astrological phenomena in the heavens. Halley's Comet was there. There were configurations of planets. Now, if you can imagine yourself before electricity, right? Go out, did anyone go look at the meteor shower on December 13th? and Anyone go out and see the, you didn't do that? Oh, it's too bad, I didn't either. But, anyway. <laughs> but I know some people who did, and they said it was really, really great. You had to get up from two to three to see it in Gemini, but they were just shooting. But imagine no electricity, total darkness, and what a night sky would be like. If you've ever been out at sea on a clear night, or out in a desert where you can, I mean, the stars are so bright, all right? Just imagine Halley's Comet. They said there were all these incredible configurations. And one of the most dramatic things that happened, just to give you a little lay of the land here, the sun rose in the constellation Virgo. So you have the sun in Virgo. That's kind of cool, all right? But in addition to that, now the star might have been miraculous. There's no, it could have been miraculous. God could have just specially created. But we do know that there was an incredible configuration of two planets that came so close together that they looked like one star. And the planet was Jupiter, which the Hebrews called Sedak, the Righteous One, Messiah. And it was in perfect alignment with Venus. Isn't that interesting? And they can show this with their computers. And if you were in the east, it would have appeared to be right on the western horizon. Is that interesting? Now if you go out tonight, if you know your stars and constellations, Taurus is right above us and Jupiter is shining very, very bright. It's been the brightest thing. If you look at the night sky, if you saw the brightest star for the last month, it's not a star, that's Jupiter. That's the planet. You've all seen Venus, right? How bright Venus can be, the morning star, evening star. Imagine those two together right on the west. Can you imagine the brightness? That would have really rattled a lot of cages. And they knew the prophecy, a star shall rise in Judah, the lion. And of course, guess what constellation this thing is happening in? Leo the lion. Now the the only other thing that I'm going to move on, because we have a lot of other things to talk about that's really interesting, is there's what's called a retrograde or retro loop, where a star or the configuration moves continuously up in a northern position. Then there's one day where it's stationary, then it starts to move back in another direction. (laughs) Guess what? On December 25th, that was directly over Bethlehem. It was stationary over Bethlehem on the 25th of December. Isn't that fascinating? Not saying it is, but, you know, it's kind of interesting. That would put the birth at 2 BC. Very interesting. Now, Jesus' birth. These things were prophesied and Jesus was pointed out as the long-awaited Messiah. His birth, the events of his early life, all of these things were borne out, of course, in four particularly important books, which we call the Gospel. Now, what I'd like to do, just to share this with you, for about seven years, I taught comparative religions. And I enjoyed it. I was teaching at a big university before I came to Christendom. And it was fascinating because I was doing world religions, so I had basically... 40% of my class Catholic, because they didn't want any Catholic religion, all right? The other 40% were all Protestants who were at a Catholic school, and they didn't want Catholic religion, and I had 20% Jews. That was the mix in the class. And it was really fun, because as you would take them, I'd start in the East, and then eventually come back and end with Christianity and focusing on Catholicism. But they all were fascinated. They just really wanted to get the Eastern religion. As soon as they start to study, and they go, oh, oh. Immersed in Brahman, I lose my personal identity, oh. I'm a woman, I have to walk 40 feet behind a man, I have to veil myself, oh. I mean, there's a lot of illusions we have. Reincarnation, wouldn't it be great to come back? Well, maybe, unless you come back as a worm, all right? Which can happen. The doctrine of samsara, ancient, very interesting. But anyway, just for comparison purpose, there's a sacred, and it's a beautiful book, and I I want to read this respectfully, but it is a beautiful book. It's called the Lalita Vishara, which talks about the birth of Buddha. So I want to read for you the account of the birth of Buddha. Then Maya Devi, surrounded by 84,000 chariots drawn by horses, 84,000 chariots hitched to elephants, adorned with ornaments of every kind, protected by an army of 84,000 soldiers of heroic courage, handsome and well-built, armed with shield and cross, preceded by 60,000 women of Kakya, protected by 40,000 members of the household of Kudanamas on his father's side, old, young, and mature alike surrounded by 60,000 members of the inner circle of King Kuradana's court, singing and producing a symphony of all manner of musical instruments, surrounded by 80,000 daughters of Naga, 80,000 daughters of Gandavar, 80,000 daughters of Kinara, 80,000 daughters of Asura, and after completing all manner of preparation and making ready all manner of adornment, singing songs and making all manner of acclamation, followed by this great retinue, the queen came out of the palace. The whole garden of Lubini flowing with perfumed waters was filled with divine flowers. And all the trees, the most beautiful of the garden, although it was not the time of year for it, were decked in leaf and fruit. The garden was perfectly adorned by the gods, not just the garden of Raka, which is perfectly adorned by the gods. Then Maya Devi entering the garden of Lubini and leaving her magnificent chariot surrounded by the daughters of men and gods, went from one tree to the other and from one woods to the other. Looking at all the trees one after the other until she came to the Plotchkot, the most precious of all precious trees, with its finely balanced crown of branches rich with beautiful leaves, gems, all covered with the flowers of gods and men, exhaling the sweetest aroma from its branches, which were decked in raiment of the most beautiful hues, sparkling in the manifold luster and gleam of a thousand precious stones, completely covered with every manner of jewel from root to trunk and branches and leaves, those large and well-balanced and symmetrical branches, while the ground was all covered with tapestry of grass, green as a peacock's tail and soft to touch. This beautiful tree without blemish she now approached, Suddenly, this tree, through the bower of Bodhisattva, bent down in salutation. Then Maya Devi, stretching out her right arm like a lightning bolt that furrows its way across the sky, then taking a branch of the tree as a sign of blessing, looked to the distant horizon of the sky and yawning remained motionless. At that moment, the 60,000 Asparsa, drawing close to server, formed an honorary escort. Accompanied by like supernatural power, Bodhisattva entered into his mother's womb. And at the end of ten full months, he issued from his mother's side, endowed with memory and knowledge, without ever having been touched by the impurity of his mother's womb. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it is beautiful, sorry. Now, just for contrast purposes. The birth of Christ, according to the Gospel of Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled in a census. This was the first census, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Do you see the difference? There's a profound difference there. One is talking about a historical event, something that really happened. The other one which is profound, the other is rich, the other is very very beautiful and very very mythological. It's not meant to be taken true. It was never meant to be taken as true. And this is where history and faith intersect. Our Catholic faith in Jesus Christ is our harmonious synthesis. Who is Jesus Christ? The church has answered very clearly. He is the second person of the Trinity, whom the Father sent into the world to become man of the Virgin Mary. And why does he come? He comes to save the world from sin. Having lost God's friendship, mankind on its own could never regain the life of grace, any more than a man who is dead can bring himself back to life again. Now, God could, if he wanted to, have given us a new natural happiness. He might have reopened heaven without all the incarnation, when forgiving everything without reparation. But that would not be in keeping with his perfect justice. And God does possess perfect justice. But he also has a divine will in which he wants to manifest perfect love. Perfect love. He therefore took the most sublime course possible, And I hate to say it because it almost trivializes it, and we have trivialized it. His only son becomes a man, representing all humanity to redeem us with his life, passion, and death. And this is one of the great differences when you examine world religions. Every other world religion, it's man seeking God. In Christianity, man doesn't seek God. God seeks man. God is always the one who initiates. God is the one who calls Abraham. God is the one who calls the prophets. God is the one who initiates. He comes searching for us. And perfect reparation, perfect satisfactory expiation could only be achieved by a man who was at the same time God. That's why Christ is our mediator. Because by his death he reconciled an estranged human race, with its creator. He is the one perfect mediator. All other mediation in some way goes through him. Now when we say we believe in the incarnation, and that's what we're focusing upon, that great mystery at this time of year as we make our way through Advent, reflecting upon the reality of God's love, we profess with the infallible church that there are in Christ two really distinct natures one human and one divine. Yet those natures are united in such a way that Christ is really only one individual, not two. Each nature remains truly and unqualifying itself. The human nature is exactly, and this is why it's almost too good to be true, God knows we need to be loved in a human way, right? With warmth and feeling. That's why instead of a great statue of Jupiter, he comes as a baby. Everybody can get their arms around a baby. That's no, no matter what the seculars try to do, you cannot stop Christmas from happening. You can try to ban nativity sets. We'll put them up in our homes and illuminate them because everyone wants the child. Everyone wants the child. And we need to reflect upon that. So he takes a human nature just like us in every single way except one thing. And what's the one thing? No sin. And sometimes say, oh, that makes him less human. That does not make him less human. That makes him more human. Think about it. Every time you sin, you debase your humanity. That's not who you are. That's not what God wanted you to be, right? That's why you need to go to confession, to start afresh from Christ. Every time you do the right thing, you give alms, you fast, you help a neighbor, you're there when someone needs a shoulder to cry on, all right? That's when you're truly free. That's when you're alive, right? That's why the world loved Mother Teresa, right? Didn't matter who you were. Everybody loved Mother Teresa. Why? She was the woman for others. Why did they love John Paul the Great, why do young people up in Toronto look at a guy in his 80s, sitting there broken, drooling out of his mouth, saying, Jesus Christ loves you, and they start crying. Because here's a man who has suffered, here is a man who's authentic, and he's suffering, but he's still there for them. The old Latin expression, right? Verba docent, exempla trahunt. Words teach, but example draws, right? You'll live it. That's why the first papal encyclical that Benedict gave us wasn't on faith. You think he was head of the congregation for doctrine of faith, of course he can write about faith. That's not the first encyclical. That would probably be his last encyclical, which he's working on right now. What was the first one? Deus caritas est. If we as Catholics live love the way Christ shows us how to live love, they're gonna see that we have hope and they're gonna want that hope And then they'll start asking us about, why do you have hope? And then you give reason for the hope that is within you. That's the faith. But you need love first. He's giving us this beautiful pedagogy for our secular world. Love first, then hope springs, then faith comes. Beautiful. So Christ, that's why whenever he encounters people, he sighs, he's so moved. He's totally the man for others. So he has a human nature just like ours and a divine nature that is infinite because God does not become less divine when he becomes human. But rather, in assuming our nature, this divine person, our Lord, second person of the blessed Trinity, exercises an incredible, loving condescension as he comes down to earth. Time and time again, Christ insisted on faith in himself as a condition for salvation. He's not an option. He's just not an ethicist. We are by nature's creatures of desire. We can't be fully satisfied by anything here below. Isn't that true? I know the cookies were great tonight, but are you still hungry? Yes, of course you are. The one glass of wine you got was great, but are you going to want another glass of wine at another time? (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, if I only had a BMW and a mansion and world peace, I'd be happy. You know what? You get the BMW, then you know... uh, uh, uh right? We got to get bigger TVs. We got to get, you know, it's just, we're never satisfied, right? And Augustine saw it and he said, you have made our hearts restless, O Lord, and they will not rest until they rest in thee. That's why at this time, it's good to step back from all the chaos and the hubbub. And the hubbub's good. I'm not against hubbub. But we need to step back to think about what is this really all about? And this is about a fundamental historical reality that God became a child. That's why one of the signs of the demonic is the hatred of the child. What happened up in Connecticut, that was evil. Not just sick, there might have been some, that was evil. Throughout history, there is a demonic hatred of childhood and innocence. And that's always the sign of the demon. Always the sign of the demon. That's why when he's born, there's another king that wants to kill children and kills a lot of little baby boys or just innocent little baby boys. But his heart was black. But at this time, we have to look at Christ. And we find ourselves so many times, you know, giving into our lower cravings and things like that. But with Christ, we don't have to do that anymore. Salvation from sin, sanctity, practice of virtue, liberation from passions, which the Greeks and the Romans wanted, everyone in humanity wanted that, but could never achieve it. But Christ is not just a pattern of holiness. He is a pattern of holiness. He's the source. He is the principle. Because when he comes, as the poet Yeats said, all is changed, changed utterly. And a terrible beauty is born. Because why? A channel of grace has been opened into time. It's opened into history because of that life, because of that presence. And this incarnation, if we step back and think about it, I mean, really think prayerfully about it, offers all of us the highest motive for loving God who became man. Why? Because he did not have to become man. He didn't have to. Didn't have to at all, but he freely chose to become a man. Why? To show how much he loves each and every member of the human family. He wasn't kidding at all when he said, but as for you, the very hairs on the top of your head are numbered. One of my favorite papal encyclicals on the mystical body, Pius XII, said, because Jesus had the beatific vision throughout his life, during his passion, he thought of each and every individual Christian as a mother contemplates her babe playing on her lap. Have you ever seen a mother with a newborn baby? Sometimes it's easy to count the hairs on the head. There aren't any. But but when you see that kind of attendance, he comes for each and every, not just for humanity, but for each and every human being on the face of the planet. And he comes to show us also how we are to love one another because of the example he gave us. And on both counts, if we step back and really look at that manger and look at what God is saying to us, the historical reality of the incarnation should inspire us to gratitude and generosity. You know, Christianity... Like Chesterton used to always say, it's a key that fits the lock. It makes sense. It answers the deepest questions of the human heart. You know, everything we know about love psychologically tells us that love always seeks to be united with the object of its affections, right? Right? If you like Guinness, you love Guinness, you know what you're going to want to do? You're going to be united to the Guinness, right? If you like pumpkin pie, you're going to want to consume the pumpkin pie. Okay, we're going from the ridiculous to the sublime. All right, boy meets girl, and it's goo goo gaga. You know what I mean by you know you fall in love, and it's goofy. Plato called it divine madness. That's what it is. Uh, do not speak to me. I'm among the mad. All right, <laughs> but when that happens, you always want to be together, right? That's why, you know, kids are on their phones all the time, even when they're not goo goo ga -ga. but when they are, it's hopeless. They'll be on for two hours, and they'll talk and talk and say, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know. And I think it's honestly true. They do not know what they're talking about because the important thing is that they're together. They are present to one another, right? That's why when you really meet someone and you really fall in love with that someone, what do you want to do? You want to marry them. You want to spend the rest of your life with them. Love always seeks union. That's why these times of year can be, Thanksgiving, Christmas can be so beautiful and so painful. Because that's when everybody's got to get together. In every song, here we are as in olden days. Happy, you know, And, and you, you need to pull everybody together. And if someone's not there, there's kind of a hole in your heart. Love always wants union. It always seeks union. And so it was with God. John says God is love. Well, if God is love, if God is love, what's he going to do? He's going to seek union with man, and he'll do that in Christ. And he will do it in the most intimate union possible, where the human nature and the divine nature are so intimately united in Christ, we call it a hypostasis. There's only one person. That's how close he is to us. One person a divine person, with a full human nature. And we also know in this fallen world that the language of love, true love, is always sacrifice, right? If you really love somebody, the acid test of whether it's a real love or not, are you willing to suffer for the sake of the beloved? If you're not willing to suffer for the one you love, you love yourself. You're not in love with the other person. Genuine love always is willing to suffer for the sake of the beloved. That's why God, who as God is perfectly happy in himself, will assume a human mortal nature. He wished to be able to suffer so he could thus experience the weakness of our humanity and share in our endurance of pain. And that sense of suffering, that's always the big question that people have in the world. Evil, suffering. Why is that there? It tormented the great son Augustine. In his confession, he finally broke down and wrote, I sought where does evil come from? And there was no solution until I found the answer in our holy religion, in our faith. And so when the world's going to come and ask us, as it will, Ecclesiastes asked, you know, the meaning of life, Job asked, Cicero asked, all the great pagans asked, what is the meaning of life, especially in the context of suffering? Does God really care about pain? Does he really care about human suffering? Does he have a heart? Is there meaning, is there purpose in this? Because let's face it, it's a huge part of life. And the older you get, the more separations there are, right? People die, people you love. It's a, Pius twelfth at one time said, life is nothing but a series of goodbyes. That's pretty melancholic for an Italian. but But I mean, it's... I mean, in a certain sense, it's true. Eventually, you've got to let go of everything. Everything. Well, maybe not everything, but just about everything. The, you know, the world's going to ask this, and, you know, these sort of questions. Does God really know what it's like to have cancer? Does he really know what it's like to have brain tumors and get recurring migraines where you feel like your head is going to explode? You're in such pain and you can't bear it. Does he know what it's like to endure drought? like people in Africa where there's been no rain for months and you really suffer from a thirst. A thirst could actually drive a person insane. Does he know what it's like to go without food, to endure a real pain of hunger where you haven't eaten for seven days or maybe 10 days without any food at all or 20 days or 30 days? Does he know what it's like to lose a parent Have a parent that you're really close to and you're young and you really love. Lose that. Or have a friend or a loved one that you're really close to and that person dies. Unexpectedly maybe and you have that heart-wrenching, agonizing grief that you can't even talk. You're just silent because it hurts too much. You can't talk about it. All you do is groan and you sigh in your heart. Does you know what it's like to be a refugee when you're driven away from your home and threatened by death? People want to kill you. Does he know what it's like to be innocent and to be cruelly tortured for conscience sake, to be thrown into a prison and tortured? Does he know what it's like to have horrible physical pain? Pain intense that it can take a person's heart out. Does he know what it's like to be abandoned by friends, to be betrayed by someone you loved, even when you're on the point of dying for the person and the person still turns their back and betrays you? Well, the divine certitude of our faith that we've been graced to have been given tells us, yes, God has proven his love. His open wounded heart and his outstretched arms beckon us to his side. So what are we supposed to do as Christians? What are we supposed to do in Advent? What are we supposed to do as we prepare for Christmas? He tells us very simply, as a fruit of that historical fact of his incarnation, love one another, love one another as I have loved you. Now, through his life and death, what I want to emphasize is there is a stream of grace that has been opened and is flowing in time and is pouring out in history. I once heard a great story from Fulton Sheen, and I'll kind of end with this, share this with you. It really struck me when I heard him say it. It was about a young woman who lived on a street where the houses were really far back from the road, the big hedges. You ever seen that They big hedges and the houses are way back? got permission from a mom to go on a first date, went out to a dance, she was only 16 years old, goes out, date drops her off, thanks him very much, he drives off, she starts to go back home, Guy's hiding in the bush, jumps her, knocks her to the ground, brutally rapes her. First date, 16 year old, and uh, horrible situation. She's just absolutely devastated. Three weeks later, she's pregnant. Uh, She sings in the choir, and everyone knows it was her first date, and they just kind of like, oh, wow, how sad. First date looks what happened to you. Her mom believed her, but nobody else did, so she was really going through a horrible agony, so she says, people at school talk about me all the time, they say things at church, it just horribly says, uh, you know, I just can't, I can't bear this. What can I do? And she wrote to the Archbishop, and Fulton Sheen, as only Fulton Sheen could do, wrote back to her and said, all this suffering you have because you've taken upon yourself the sins of one man. Suppose you took on the sins of 30 or 100 men. Perhaps you might begin to have a bloody sweat. And that young girl understood and she wrote back to the bishop and said, I will pray for the man that did this to me every day for the rest of my life. That's what it means to have God become a man. That's what it means to have the reality of the incarnation. There is a stream of grace that has been opened, that is pouring, that is affecting people all over our planet, and it still is affecting people all over the planet right now because Christ is real. The love of the heart of Christ triumphed in her, and it can triumph in us if we have the faith to let him, if we open our heart to him. That's the fruit of the incarnation. That's the fruit of Christmas. That's what we're moving towards right at this time. And that's why it's important to remember that Christ is not just at heaven. He's at heaven at the right hand of the Father. Absolutely. He ascended to his right hand. But he's also on earth in our midst as the head of his mystical body, which is the church. And in the Holy Eucharist, he's right there. It's a bizarre thing to think. We're so weird as Catholics. But just a few hundred yards from here, there's a church, and Christ is really and truly body, blood, soul, and divinity present there. And you can go anytime and visit Him and talk and receive that grace and strength. And this torrent of grace has been unleashed in history. It transformed Peter, it transformed John and Andrew, it transformed Saul into Paul. It hit Francis. It hit Dominic. It hit St. Thomas Aquinas. It hit Bernard of Clairvaux. And you can go on and on. Charles de Foucault, Mother Teresa, John Paul. Think of the martyrs in the last century who suffered in the gulag. How did they do that? How did they do that? because Christ is real and Christ was giving them the strength, the same strength that we can have. The Christ of Catholicism is not a mere memory of a great historical person who lived one time and was born one time, whose influence still lives on among his followers. He is, in his own words, the Alpha from whom all creation had its beginning and is the Omega towards which everything is ultimately directed. And all of us will find our destiny in him. He is the center of time. He is the center of history. And history does not move in endless, repetitious cycles. Like every other world religion says, round and around on the merry-go-round of fate. No endless cycles. He is the one who says, behold, I make all things new. Thank you. God bless you.
1: thank you thank you very much Dr. O'Donnell for a wonderful presentation. For those that need to leave, I want to wish you a blessed Christmas and I will be praying for you and your families as I always do. I'm a little under the weather tonight, so if you uh raise your hand for a question, you're you may be endangering your health, but I'll try to stay away from you as far as possible. So So given what you said more towards the beginning of the lecture about various pagans predicting the coming of Christ, what stock can we put in or what belief can we have in other pagan prophecies since
3: they got these ones right? It's not so much that you put stock in pagan prophecy, it's more of a question of Christ is coming to redeem man and there is this constant theme of human nature. And there's a constant theme of human longing and desire, a desire for salvation, a desire to be liberated from sin. And I think this is something that you find in many world religions. And there's many different answers to that, but I think it's almost a universal phenomenon. Now it's so happened that things like Virgil's fourth Eclogue is a very puzzling passage about speaking specifically of the virgin coming and the child and things like that. And of course, Christians looking back on that, it seems to fit very easily into what they were looking for. So I think it's more of a question of looking for the desire of the human heart. Peter had just brought up the whole question of Norse mythology and Scandinavian thing, the whole idea of that the gods themselves are going to die and there would be a great day of doom and there would be some type of eternal rebirth after that of some kind. But a lot of these things are things that really are deep in human psychology, deep in human heart. So it's not so much that they themselves might be worthy of belief, but they invent something that is deep in human nature that was fulfilled in a perfect way with the coming of Christ.
0: Wonderful lecture. You spoke about um, comparative religions. I couldn't help but thinking when you said the Romans, the Greeks, the Jews all looked on those who were suffering as people rejected by God. I think that there are certain strains of Protestantism that also is like the wealth is a symbol of, of righteousness.
3: I think, Oh, I think there are elements of truth to that, but I think you'll find elements on the part of everyone's thinking that way oftentimes. Sometimes when something horrible happens, it says, oh, God's teaching them a lesson or something like that. A lot of times we'll attribute that to bad conduct or something, but when we're all sinners, that's not a Christian way to think about things or view things. In a certain sense, <laughs> given the example of the Lord, suffering is something that should actually be embraced not say so you go out and seek it foolishly or something like that, but it obviously is a special channel of grace. John Paul wrote a beautiful apostolic letter on the meaning of Christian suffering, which was very beautiful and very, very profound. So, I mean, there's always, there will always be people, I think, there's a certain strain uh, within Protestant tradition where I think that is true, but not always the case. I mean, they have a deep understanding of the cross and redemption and things like that. There's sort of the gospel of success type of idea. But there's no doubt. I mean, God can bestow great blessings and we can rejoice in that, it can be a sign of God's goodness and blessing. But the idea that anyone who suffers is under a curse or anyone who's born with a particular handicap is been rejected by God. is very common even at the time of the apostles. Did, was this man born blind? Was this his own sin or was this the sin of his parents? That's what they asked. And he said, neither, but that the works of God may be manifested. That's the proper Christian answer.
0: Dr. O'Donnell, you spoke about the wonderful blessings of the sacrament of penance. Something that I just recently heard over a Christian radio station was an advertisement for Christians. Christians, this is a Protestant station, WGTS, Christians seeking for a church that has confession, and I was blown away, and I don't know if anyone else has heard of that. I haven't actually been able to talk to anyone about that, but I suppose that that would be their own kind of confession that they have within the Protestant church, certainly not the sacrament of confession. Have you heard that?
3: I know that there are certain things like James says, confess your sins to one another, the idea that they're almost like a chapter of faults where you'd come together and as an act of humility confess for the sake of community prayer to try to strengthen the individual, help them to overcome temptation and weakness. And that's sort of a vestige of what was there. I know that there are some Lutheran churches that actually have penance services where you would actually come and speak of sins and then receive a blessing from the minister. It's not exactly sacramental confession, but you know what? This is the great reason why we need our Protestant brothers and sisters to come back because they packed their bags very quickly when they left, and they left some really key things out of that bag. And so they don't have to really give up anything that they have, but they get so much more to actually have the, the beauty of the sacrament. But yeah, I think that's another thing because that is a big, big part of Christian tradition. Something that was so close to the heart of John Paul II was, and he commented many times how many Catholics are going to communion and how few go to confession. And that is a crucial sacrament, especially in this day and age, because there's so many graces that can be given, strengthening of sacramental grace, strengthening of the will through that sacrament that should really be taken advantage of.
1: You had laid out in very clear terms the world's expectation of this coming Messiah. From my understanding, the Incarnation was completed on the cross, there was an expectation at Christ's birth, was there the same sort of sense of loss at the world's Messiah being crucified
3: at the crucifixion? Absolutely. The incarnation makes the redemption possible. God becomes man to suffer and to die. Christ himself said, when I'm lifted up then I shall draw all things to myself. So obviously you wouldn't want to separate the two. It's a continuum. You even have the shadow of the cross at Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem means house of bread. So Eucharist, he's put in a manger, a place where they would use feed for animals. So there's even a sacrificial content that you find already there. When you have Paul's passage, the fullness of time, God sent his son, that refers to the fullness of time of Christ's life. That would be everything, birth, his life, his passion, death, and resurrection. That's all part of the great mystery of Christ. And there would have been foreshadowings that you would have seen of that as well. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell.
1: Thank you all for coming this evening. May God
0: grant you a blessed Christmas. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.